goal on the ERLC podcast is to help you think biblically about today's cultural issues. As we discuss important topics that matter to Southern Baptists, you might have additional questions. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at erlcpodcast at erlc.com and let us know how you're processing the conversations featured on the podcast. And just a reminder, we want to make sure you're kept up to date about the important work the ERLC is doing on behalf of Southern Baptists. The best way to do that is by joining us at erlc.com backslash updates. Signing up for email updates allows you to hear directly from us about our work and the ways we're serving you on the issues that matter most to Southern Baptists. Become an email subscriber at erlc.com backslash updates. That's erlc.com backslash updates. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast, where our goal is to help you think biblically about today's cultural issues. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and today we're starting a new series that will focus on life. God's Word, from the very beginning, affirms the dignity of all human life. Genesis 1 tells us that at the end of the creation process, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. This reveals to us that every person is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And this means that every life, regardless of age, ability, or any other feature, has infinite value that cannot be taken away. The rest of the Bible unwaveringly affirms this truth. The pro-life movement is grounded in this reality and most fundamentally has sought to protect our tiniest citizens from the horrors of abortion. The culmination of this work was realized on June 24th, 2022, a historic day of celebration as the Supreme Court ruled to overturn the constitutional right to abortion and return abortion legislation back to the states. This was a long-time unifying goal of the pro-life movement. According to the New York Times, since the court's ruling, abortion access has dropped overall, with 21 states banning or restricting it and others reinforcing abortion protections. However, the fight for life and the mission of the pro-life movement is far from over, and there's still much work to be done on the local, state, and federal levels. New frontiers have arisen with abortion tourism or travel for abortions across state lines and chemical abortions, also known as abortion pills, gaining momentum across our country. As we begin our series, we'll talk to several guests who will give us a clear picture of the current state of the pro-life movement since the court's historic Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision. You'll hear from Benjamin Watson, a former NFL tight end, as well as a writer, speaker, and activist. He's the author of The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. He serves as Vice President of Strategic Relationships with the Human Coalition, one of the largest pro-life and pro-woman organizations in the country. Along with his wife, Kirsten, he's the founder of the Watson 7 Foundation, a nonprofit focused on strengthening families. 
The Watsons live in Georgia with their seven children. Also joining us is Herbie Newell, President and Executive Director of Lifeline Children's Services and its ministry arms. He holds a Master's of Business Administration in Accounting from Samford University. Under Herbie's leadership, Lifeline has increased international outreach to 25 countries through adoption and strategic orphan care, obtained licensure in 17 states, and established the foster care arm at Lifeline. Finally, you'll hear from Dr. Bart Barber, who's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, and president of the Southern Baptist Convention. For many, the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn Roe versus Wade felt victorious, and it was. Yet, we can't overlook the reality that there's still much work to be done as the battle to protect human life marches on. Here's Benjamin Watson to help us better understand the current landscape of the pro-life movement and the challenges we may face ahead on the state level. If we can take ourselves back to June 24th when Roe was overturned, and for those who are listening who are pro-life, that that was a monumentous occasion. It was something that so many people had looked forward to and fought for, and it was something to be celebrated. While at the same time, I had an overwhelming feeling that the pro-life movement may not be ready for all that was going to happen in a post-Roe America. And while it was important for the Supreme Court to make that decision, the larger issue that we must wrestle with and contend with is the fact that the driving factors, whatever they may be for women to seek abortions and men to seek abortions for their partners are still there. And so while we celebrate those things, but also it's part of an an encouragement, I think, to the pro-life movement to say that this is almost like halftime. I played a lot of football and (laughs) we used to come in at halftime and reorder the game plan. We would take a break. We would reevaluate. The coach would always have some talking points and fire us up to go back out there. And for pro-lifers, I think this is kind of a, a halftime for us where we need to be engaged in this fight in perhaps a different way than we were before, maybe a holistic way than we were before, because now the legislation is on the state level, the fight is on the state level. But again, the driving factors, whether they be relationships, whether it be housing, whether it be health care, all those sorts of things, those issues are prevalent and women are still struggling with those things. How can we as pro-lifers continue to step in and serve them in ways that promote life. Something that people should know if they don't, and this is disturbing, is that chemical abortions make up about 50% of abortions now. And by chemical abortions, I mean mifepristone is a pill. There's a two-pill process that women can take in the privacy of their own bathrooms at home and can have abortions at home without ever going to a clinic. And so the landscape, the picture of abortion as being something that you go in and then you see a doctor, and he performs a procedure, that still does happen, but for 50% right now and rising up to 60, 70% in the next couple of years is chemical abortion. And so that needs to be on our radar. How do we sound that alarm? How do we push our elected officials to create regulations around that? There's a whole world there on that issue that is kind of of, uh, covert right now. Not as many people are talking about it, but it's still ending lives. Overturning Roe has revealed strengths and weaknesses of the pro-life movement. As we survey the landscape post-Roe and look to the future of advocating for mothers and children in need, there are things that will remain the same and strategies that will need to change. 
Bart, Barber, and Benjamin address some observations and encouragements for pro-life advocates in these days. In many ways, Roe v. Wade was a unifying factor among people who were opposed to abortion. So one thing that I've observed is sort of the fellowship of the ring has been broken or fractured in some ways. You have the differences over whether to take a federal approach or a state approach because there's some people who would like to pass federal legislation that would move us closer to the goal in an incremental way of ending all abortion all across America. But then, you know, you have people who are rather infamously against that. The abortion abolition movement obviously is one example of another splinter group that has moved away from the pro-life consensus that held for really a long time. And then the other thing that I would observe, not only is that it's weakened the pro-life movement in some ways by the ways that we've been divided about what to do next. We're kind of like the dog that caught the car in some ways, that Roe v. Wade's been overturned with the Dobbs decision, and now that we've achieved this, we don't know what to do. But also, while it has divided us in some ways, it's really unified a lot of people on the other side of this question. And there's a boldness a new unifying force among people who are supportive of abortion. So we're going to need to pretty quickly get our act together and chart a unifying vision for where to go from here as folks who defend life. If we do not do that, we may find that we have the same outcome that our forefathers had when they achieved prohibition in 1920 and thought that they had won We can't stop and think that we've won. Instead, what we've got to do is continue to put a vision in front of people that persuades them to move forward in respecting and defending life. Some of the things that stay the same for pro-lifers, I think number one are supporting pregnancy resource centers. Some people call them crisis pregnancy centers, pregnancy resource centers, women's centers, whatever terminology you use, these are organizations, entities, many of them brick and mortar that serve uh, women and children with material needs when they are in a decision for life. Many of the women who come through the doors want to parent, but they need someone to come alongside of them. And what these resource centers do is they provide everything from diapers to doctorate degrees, literally, because they help women get education or whatever that they may need with direct services. Many of them also serve men as well and encouraging them from a fatherhood and equipping them from a fatherhood standpoint. So We need to continue to to support our pregnancy resource centers. Something else that we should continue to do that we've been doing is being on our knees and praying for not just for life, but for families, uh, for our culture, you know, for those who are in decision making roles, whether it be in, in local, federal, state government. We need to be a people and a church who is advocating for life in all of its phases, whether that be the person who's, who's trafficked, whether that's those who are suffering from poverty, whether it's, it's those who are, are feeling the brunt of racism or discrimination. We as, as believers have an opportunity to show the world the full spectrum of what it means to be pro-life. And that's something that we must continue to do. I, I would say some things that we need to change. Part of it is our understanding. Uh, at Human Coalition, we talk about the 76%. And that number comes from the stat that we found from the abortion-determined women that we serve, that 76% of them say they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. And so we focus specifically on that 76%. And for the pro-life community, I think it's also imperative and instructive that we look at that 76% too and say, if it's relationship with the father, 
How do we promote family? How do we serve men from an employment standpoint? There's so many different ways and so many different avenues that pro-lifers are in. What's legislation that's being passed, or policy that's being passed that we could support to help people secure their housing? What about healthcare? The numbers are atrocious when it comes to so many women who are suffering from maternal mortality or morbidity or issues with healthcare. Many women don't even have healthcare. They live in healthcare deserts, maternal healthcare deserts specifically. And so these are all issues that I think we need as pro-lifers to shift in our thinking and see how things are connected. Many times we see the tip of the iceberg, but it's time for us to dig a little bit deeper under the surface of the water and see where we can actually turn off the faucet that's making people to be vulnerable to abortion. While we are believers, there are so many people who aren't believers that see this issue from our viewpoint. And I'm not one to say that we have to join hands with everybody on everything. I don't believe that. But I do believe that on this issue of life, there are many different organizations, whether they be atheists for life, organizations, feminists, evangelicals, Catholics, you got all these other factions. And I think it's important that we work together on this issue and that we build bridges where before there were moats, <laughs> there were ditches, and we felt like we were each working in our own silos. I think that this is a tremendous opportunity to show some sort of alliance on this issue. Again, it doesn't have to be on everything, but on protecting preborn life, on serving women, on serving families. I think that we have an opportunity there. Despite the challenges and the tremendous amount of work that has to be done to promote a culture that values all of life in our country, there has never been a greater opportunity for Christians to proclaim a biblical view of life. And we have many avenues we can take to proclaim those truths and put action to our words, getting involved in caring for our tiniest neighbors. So what's the first thing we should do in order to seek out opportunities to serve the vulnerable? The very first thing I think we have to do is we have to start praying. We've got to go to the God of heaven, who is the father to the fatherless, the defender of the orphan, the defender of the widow. We have to go to the one that commands us to care, and we have to begin to pray on behalf of women and children, on behalf of our system. And then we've got to start looking introspectively and say, Lord, how would you want me to be involved? And I think when you start going to your father, going to the sustainer, creator, and author of the universe to say, okay, Lord, I'm praying on your behalf. Will you intervene as only you can intervene in these systems and situations? But then will you show me my call? Will you show me my marching orders? Don't be surprised when he begins to show you your marching orders, when he starts to put in your way the things that you should do. And this is something that anyone in the church, anyone in Christendom can do, and not only can do, we're called to do. We are called to intervene on behalf of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Southern Baptists have made their convictions about life known. The Baptist faith and message summarizes the biblical teaching that every person bears the image of God and thus is worthy of protection and dignity, regardless of age, level of ability, or stage of development. Though the landscape of the pro-life movement has changed, the call to stand for life has not. We must be ready to advocate for life at every turn and in the circumstances in which the Lord has placed us. 
From the unseen mother who has changed her 10th diaper of the day, to the policymaker who advocates for a pro-life bill, to the Pregnancy Resource Center volunteer who counsels the woman with an unplanned pregnancy. Regardless of the opinion of our culture, let's take our cues from our God and walk in the power of His Spirit as we embrace every life. Thanks for listening to this production of the ERLC Podcast. Join us next time as we focus on the ERLC's policy work, especially as it relates to life. Thank you.